Southwestern family of companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. Each week, our diversely and amazingly accomplished guests share their insights and inspirations to help us ignite our own. So let's invest attention together to breathe, to reflect and refocus, and decisively defeat that voice we call Mr. Mediocrity. Then let's enjoy moving forward to make a positive difference in our world. Southwestern Advantage is about so much more than just helping your family with education. Our company is the nation's oldest entrepreneurial program, helping college and university students build character and develop the skills they need to achieve their goals in life. These are the kind of skills employers seek that cannot be taught in a classroom. Skills such as problem solving, effective personal communication with people from all walks of life, confidence, attitude, goal setting, and more. Since 1855, the Southwestern Family of Companies has invested in purpose-driven people who are inspired to build principle-guided businesses that impact the world. And for many, that purpose started with a summer at Southwestern Advantage. But this program isn't just about growing the young men and women whom you'll see in the community. It's also about growing your own son or daughter and the educational resources they will bring to your home are second to none with learning systems that address the whole child from preschool to 12th grade. Uniquely designed by top educators, these resources serve the modern needs of today's private, public, and homeschooled students. They're kid-approved, parent-preferred, and teacher-recommended. At Southwestern Advantage and the Southwestern Family of Companies, we invest in building people and inspire them to achieve their goals in life to positively impact the world. Learn more at southwesternadvantage.com slash action. Today's guest is Jamie Beaton, co-founder and CEO of Crimson Education, the world's leading U.S. and U.K. university admissions support company. One of the youngest in the world to be accepted into Stanford's Graduate School of Business, Jamie developed Crimson to bring together experts from the best universities around the globe, with users four times more likely to gain admission to an Ivy League university. Jamie shares some of the secrets to this success in his book, Accepted, out now. We hope you enjoy. Well, welcome to the Action Catalyst, everyone. This is Dan Moore, and I'm very, very delighted to have our multinationally experienced and educated amazing guest, often called Wunderkind, Mr. Jamie Beaton, joining us here, originally from New Zealand, with stops at Oxford, with stops in Cambridge, Mass., currently in New York. Jamie, welcome to the Action Catalyst. I'm super excited to be here. Uh, great to chat today, Dan. Well, we, we know from our, our introduction that our listeners have already heard about you. You have done some amazing things in the area of personal academic excellence, graduating and getting into master's program at the age of 19, and then a PhD as a Rhodes Scholarship at Oxford. What you've done is remarkable. What's even more remarkable is that you're becoming very much a catalyst for a lot of young people to get into the colleges of their choice, the very top elite colleges, four times the average acceptance rate because of the techniques that you've perfected and are able to teach to people. Share with us a little bit about why you actually got into this particular business. With your acumen, with your skills, with your background, you could be doing anything. Why did you put your entrepreneurial talents in this direction of helping others do some of what you've done? Great question. So growing up in New Zealand, uh, until I was 14, I was focused on potentially getting into a domestic uh, New Zealand university, for example, doing something like medicine or law locally. And I'd never kind of even considered the idea of applying to one of these global universities. Going through high school, I had really no idea what entrepreneurship was. I didn't know what investing or Wall Street was. Quite fortuitously, I spoke to this boy who was the valedictorian of my high school. He'd gotten into Yale and he told me that I should consider applying overseas. So I spent the next four years really building my candidacy for these top schools like Harvard, 
that really became the goal for me. And then um, once I applied and got into these schools and I actually got to go to these institutions, it was just totally uh, mind-blowing. Um, I was able to quickly meet so many inspiring students, classmates, professors. Um, I was able to you know, uh, build out my own company, Crimson, and begin working as, a, as an investment analyst in New York. And quickly, I realized how transformative these hired experiences can be, especially from a, you know, for a kid like me from a far-flung part of the world like New Zealand. So when I launched Crimson, I really had a lot of passion behind uh, bringing more students access to the kind of guidance they need to get into these really elite institutions that will give them all this opportunity. And I remember distinctly in 2015 or so, I was sitting at Tiger, which is a hedge fund here in New York. And I was uh, looking at my Bloomberg terminal. I just finished some counseling with some students. And I was really thinking about, you know, post-graduation, do I want to really uh, go big on Crimson or stay in the investment world? And I really thought to myself that, you know, impacting students and helping them find the best path for them, you know, that is so impactful, so rewarding. And I, I also could do it all over the world. So I figured there was a great opportunity to build something that, you know, had real uh, meaning. So uh, I haven't looked back and I've been really going deeper and deeper into this education space over the last um, eight years now. Now, in my own experience of advising young people about college choices, so many of them sell themselves short. They say, well, there's no point in even applying. There's no way I would get in. How, how would you address that to a, a bright young person that is considering not applying to one of these top tier universities simply because of the lack of self-belief? It's a great question. Okay, so the first thing is this problem often is uh, actually catalyzed by uh, guidance counselors, other folks in the school who, who you know, might be just in the pattern of recommending you know, local colleges and universities and you know, uh, the, obviously these really uh, competitive schools like Stanford and New Chicago, they've got very extensive application processes. So it's a very big lift for everyone involved to send kids to these schools. And so I think in general, um, there's a tendency to, you know, deviate to more conservative options and um, take the path that's a bit easier, but that's really a huge loss of opportunity. So it's really critical that students are applying to the most ambitious schools possible for them. And, you know, the good thing about this process is that it is a holistic admissions process in which, you know, students are assessed based on the context of their high school. So if they go to a high school where a kid hasn't gone to, say, Yale in four years or something, or the school only has a couple of AP subjects you can take, or there aren't that many extracurriculars on offer, actually, um, and you've got a student who's actually really uh, thrive within that environment, they'll actually get a lot more support from the admissions office for doing that. So you actually do get a bit of a benefit from being one of the quirky few kids in your school that actually applies to these bold schools, which is even more reason to do it. The last thing that you know we do at Crimson is we, we've taken a bit of a money ball-like approach to this um, with our data science background. So we've built these college admissions algorithms, which tell you based on your SAT score, ACT score, or GPA, or extracurriculars, um, have financial aid requirements, majors, other kind of preferences, what kind of schools are you likely to get into with what probabilities? And so our students will often be applying to reach, match, and safety schools based on probability rather than just intuition. And that helps to correct some of that bias in which a student might be skewing downwards through a lack of belief to you know, more conservative options. Right. I like the money ball illustration. That's a fantastic way to look at it. Now, what about the role of parents in this process? Because parents are very much into the shepherding and sometimes the guiding and sometimes the coercing part of this whole process. How do you coordinate parental influence with student desire when they may be at odds with one another? So the first thing is the parent has to play a valuable role in doing all three of those things. You know, I see really talented students who are um, 5, 8, 10, 11, 12. And, you know, when you're a particularly young student, even if you've got a lot of passion for academics, um, you still don't really uh, have the ability to make all these choices for yourself. So having a, you know, a parent that can encourage you to challenge yourself, you know, hop into a more challenging math class or take an extracurricular like debating for the first time and begin to catalyze those different experiences for you 
is very is very impactful. So in my life, I had my mum, and she's actually featured in the book a lot. Um, accepted, and basically, she learned a lot of the academic content uh, that I I needed to know for my school up to the age of ten or eleven. We would do studying together on the weekend. I remember sitting at Wendy's with her, preparing for certain exams. Um, and she was a bit of a cheerleader for me. Where you know, when I was really under pressure, studying some different tests or assessments, you know, she knew what was going on, and I felt I had that strong kind of emotional support from her. And as I moved through high school and I got a bit older and I was really, I guess, leading my own charge and setting my own priorities and goals, you know, that support role she played, that emotional stability was really critical in giving me more endurance to keep, you know, taking more subjects, pushing myself harder, et cetera. So I do think, you know, and I see thousands of parents all around the world with many different parenting styles, many different cultural backgrounds across both America and the world too. And I think in general, the, the best approach is, you know, you want a, a child who at least through probably the middle of high school has quite a lot of intrinsic motivation for the process, has found some majors or interests they're excited about. But you want an engaged parent or parents who, um, you know, help, you know, the child ride those different emotional waves this process creates for them. And I think that's, you know, a really good harmonious state. Typically when the parents are pushing too much of the process, it can sort of dilute the child's uh, internal motivation a little bit, but a good balance is critical for success. Mm -hmm. uh, well said, and I, I love the fact you're including all of these vital influences in this whole process. That's fantastic. You know, it'd be pretty easy to look at your, your career and your young life so far, Jamie, and conclude that everything has been smooth sailing, but I think I know better. I'm sure that you've hit some brick walls once in a while where you've been trucking right along and all of a sudden there's an obstacle you were not anticipating. What are some strategies that you have found effective when you run into a sudden setback that was just out of the blue? Some of the most challenging times in my life were actually in my last year of high school where I had um, really, uh, so growing up, I guess I, I grew up with my, my granddad, my grandmother, my mom, and my dad, and um, we're you know, very close to the family unit. Um, and my, uh, basically, there was a bit of a family uh, uh, challenge illness with um, my grandmother that was really dragging on the family. It was a, a very, very sad emotional burden for, for everybody. And you know, that experience was quite you know, jarring for my granddad. And he was a big role model to me growing up. Since I was very young, you know, he was almost like a second father figure of sorts to me. And so my last year in high school, I was sort of uh, really grappling with um, having to you know, play more of a a uh, serious role in supporting you know, my, my own granddad um, emotionally alongside uh, going through this really intense college process. And so without going into all the details, basically, um, I was really being stretched in a lot of different directions. And, and that felt like at some points, you know, it was, just gonna, it was just too much. As far as how you kind of get through this, I think there are a couple of really you know, practical approaches you can take. So the first thing is that, you know, when you're getting you know, knocked down, so to speak, you, you got to keep those communication channels open to that select group of people in your life that, you know, you really trust and, uh, you know, back you. So that for me was a couple of my best buddies. That was my mom and that was my dad as well. And I'm not closing off because I think, you know, if you open and share your stress um, and you, you know, share how you're feeling, that can often really help to alleviate some of that burden. A lot of the time, the way these things mount is quite exponential. Um, you may have, say, three different bad things that have happened and they feel overwhelming at the moment. But if you slow down and just talk through them one by one and realize actually you can you know, hopefully at least mitigate maybe two of these things, that can really bring down the pressure quite significantly. The other thing from a practical high school perspective to make this very concrete is you can actually smooth many of the you know, challenging milestones of high school over four years rather than just you know, one year. So things like the SAT, things like your college essays, things like extracurriculars, you can actually bring them forward and do them um, you know, in the early couple of years of high school. So there's less of this kind of big pressure near the end when everything is due at the same time. And so techniques like that in many areas of life where you just aren't allowing yourself to get to a point where there's just too many intense things happening at one time is, is a great technique. Then finally, of course, you know, 
uh, fitness and sleep are critical. Um, I played a lot of uh, competitive field hockey and tennis. Field hockey, I think, is, is more of a girl sport here in America, um, which was uh, sad when I came to the US realized. But basically, um, you know, these these sports uh, really helped me to also get some extra you know, mental fortitude because I think they really do help you with allevi- alleviating pressure and stuff too. And then sleep is something that a lot of high school students can start neglecting to the end of high school. But, you know, getting at least a good seven plus hours is, I think, pretty critical for that mental stamina. There's a whole lot of valuable information packed into a very short response that you gave us there, which is great. Now, what do you do on a personal level to keep yourself growing, to keep yourself from getting satisfied or complacent? And some people might say, oh, he's too young to let that happen. But you and I both have known people that get a bit jaded, even in their mid-20s, where they feel as though, I've got it all. But you have that, that eagerness, that hunger, that desire to keep growing. I think you really have to set up the environment around you very proactively to create uh, the opportunity for c- continual learning. So in my case, what I do is I, I'm constantly doing at least one academic program alongside my work at Crimson. As I wrapped up my default program at Oxford, where I was studying uh, what drove uh, student outcomes and student satisfaction in, in, in online schooling in particular, you know, I'm now doing um, law school. And I find those experiences where I'm you know, just learning for the sake of it, very valuable. I then also, um, you know, you want to avoid, you know, so to speak, burning out. So I always have hobbies. So one hobby I play is a game called Warhammer 40K, which is a bit of a nerdy tabletop kind of game, but I really enjoy it. And um, a bit of time for yourself, some of these hobbies, whatever it is for you can, you know, really recharge yourself. And then of course, you've got to make sure work is really stimulating. You know, if you're choosing the right context, hopefully it shouldn't feel like too much like work. So when I build in Crimson, you know, I have the thrill of seeing the students we've worked with for years is so engaging. And then, you know, there's the business challenges, strategy questions. Should we buy this company? Should we invest in this business? That keeps you really fresh. And then I think continually resetting your ambitions and then also having some longer term goals too, family goals. So I, I think it's all about continually uh, looking at that growth mindset, sort of forgetting the past a little bit and what you've been able to do and looking forward and sort of continuing to tilt the plane of ambition uh, to a higher horizon. The last thing is just who you surround yourself with. If you surround yourself with people that have a growth mindset, that are also challenging themselves and are very ambitious. It's, it's infectious. And, you know, you get kind of like a one plus one equals three situation going on. So I do think, um, you know, you want to make sure you've got, you know, the folks in your life as well that do have that mindset too. Um, and, and that will, you know, really help you as well with that energy. If you surround yourself with other people with a growth mindset, it is infectious. That is a brilliant quotation. I love it. And I'm quite familiar with Warhammer. When my eldest turned 16, we made a pilgrimage to Nottingham and we played a few games there. So I quite understand. Wow. That is the dream. So for those of you who aren't familiar, I think uh, you may be referring to Warhammer World, which is sort of the, uh, the, the biggest Warhammer uh, store, I think, in the world or production place. So that, that's, that, you know what you're talking about. That's very exciting. That. that was tremendously fun. Now, what guidance could you give for, for our listeners that are maybe at the moment really struggling with a sense of direction? They may be mid-career. Things are, are okay, just not brilliant, not great. To reinvigorate the sense of excitement. You've got some really powerful ways to just keep yourself reinvigorated. What could you pass on to people that are maybe a generation or two older than you about how to look at your current situation and find a way to get even more excited about it? The first thing is people really underestimate how quickly you can um, pivot your trajectory or build some new skills that can meaningfully change, you know, uh, the, the, the pace of your career. So I see a lot of folks that are, you know, in the mold or in the funk of a certain kind of job. Um, they're not pursuing any kind of studying outside of their you know, career. And so they're really just going through the motions in, in, in one particular role. On the flip side, I've seen, um, you know, for example, take one of our directors, her name's Janine Manning. When she was in her 50s, she decided to go to Cambridge and do a, a new degree in social innovation and then pivot her role towards uh, angel investing, uh, corporate governance, et cetera. And she's been on a fantastic career 
uh, trajectory over the last you know 10 years or so, having made that decision to pick up that Cambridge degree after seeing all these crimson kids, you know, uh, looking to, the, to these uh, top university programs. So I think um, first thing people underestimate how quickly you can pivot and change to a new trajectory. So think about you know it could start with a Coursera class where you learn you know some uh, basic statistics tools or some financial analytics skills you haven't learned before. Or it could be a negotiating class uh, online that helps you, you know, manage conflicts in your job more effectively. And then secondly, um, you know, uh, often it can take only, you know, six months to three years to pivot to a new type of role, but you need to ask. So, you know, you need to either speak to your employer, figure out what other parts of the organization could be really interesting to you and how you can get there. Or, you know, obviously you could change jobs too. Um, but I think you, you, you need to switch from being sort of like a passive recipient of, you know, working dynamics to being a very active learner. There's actually a really good book that I recommend. The book is called Power, Why Some People Have It and Others Don't by Jeffrey Pfeiffer. He's a Stanford Business School professor. And he talks about how in many companies, the dynamics are set up such that, you know, that you really have to think about your own career trajectory. You've got to ask the hard questions. You've got to ask for progression because it's not always going to be the case that these things, you know, just magically land in your lap. So uh, being very proactive about, you know, pushing your manager or other folks to uh, engage with you on those career conversations um, will, will, will keep your you know, energy replenished. And if you set the norm with your manager that you want to have those career progression conversations, you do have this clear career goal, um, you know, that will force them to engage with you and that'll become a clear priority for them. These are brilliant ideas. Somehow, despite your obvious brilliance, your many achievements, you have a very appealing humility to you. Oh, cheers. What obstacles have you encountered because of your age in trying to get backing, trying to get support, trying to get buy-in, trying to get people to even believe in you at all? Have, have you encountered any and what are strategies you could advise for our younger listeners? So I would say whenever you're building any entrepreneurial venture, by definition, you are trying to build something new that's tackling a problem in a new lens. And so you've got, you know, incumbents who are going to naturally want to push against whatever you're doing. You'll have people that are, you know, initially skeptical. And so really entrepreneurship is often about pushing through waves and waves and waves of, uh, you know, detractors or folks that aren't necessarily on the same page. And then converting them, hopefully, to be big advocates for you as you go. So in my case, to give very specific examples, when I started Crimson, I was 18. I had, uh, you know, just had a great academic, you know, track record at high school, but I had no teaching degree. Um, and I was, you know, guiding students on how to apply to these schools. And I knew that I had this knowledge and insight for my personal journey to add a lot of value. But you could see a lot of traditional guidance counselors would be very skeptical or, you know, teachers at schools that have been teachers for 20 years, you know, wondering, you know, why is this even necessary, especially in these international countries. And so initially it was about really focusing on student outcomes. And just in my first cohort of students, just getting some amazing college outcomes. So I can really speak to the track record of success, you know, they had achieved. And those students can be really brand ambassadors and advocates, you know, for us. So it was about creating that, that movement of credibility. The second thing that I did was to, you know, try and build a lot of external validation for this, um, you know, area of education I was focused on. So um, I did that master's in education at Stanford. I went over to Oxford for the um, PhD, looking at what drives student outcomes and student satisfaction in online learning. And I really formally studied in a very rigorous way a lot of these different problems we were encountering and, and uh, you know, regulate Crimson for our students and opportunities for them. So that when I spoke to, for example, you know, heads of universities or um, heads of major schools, you know, I had some credibility to stand on as well um, from an academic perspective. So I think um, uh, you, you want to get both, uh, you know, soft or informal uh, credibility through success in whatever you're building. And then also look for those, you know, serious external signals of credibility too. And then over time, I've also been able to recruit some amazing advisors I'm really grateful for, you know, folks like Larry Summers, who used to be the president of Harvard, and folks like Tomihiro Hoshi, who's the head of the Stanford Online High School. 
And, you know, it becomes infectious over time as you keep building your organization and your principles become very clear and your results and impact are very clear. You can attract top advisors, which then amplifies that impact further. So there are a couple of the techniques that I've used um, to, you know, build a lot more momentum behind Crimson from sort of when we started when I was 18 to now, you know, 26, eight years in. So you were a Harvard undergrad when you started Crimson? Actually, I started Crimson before I even got on campus. So um, <laughs> I started Crimson in the middle of 2013. Around, uh, around March 2013. And then I you know, jumped on camps first time in September 2013. So my first recruits for Crimson were the three other kids that had gone into Harvard from New Zealand that year and a bunch of students from high school that, I, that I'd gone through and done competitive debating with or Olympiad with. And so I recruited this pool of great academic students from New Zealand. That was my first you know, pool of mentors. And then when I landed on campus at Harvard, I you know, recruited my kind roommates on the platform you know, freshman year um, uh, and, you know, in the dorm rooms, et cetera, getting on board those initial mentors. That was kind of how this all began. That's great. How big is your current staff? It's kind of a, a crazy number, but we're, we're up to about 650 full-time staff around the world and about um, 2,400 uh, consultants, mentors, tutors, teachers um, who do a lot of delivery as well. And our staff are really dispersed across a bunch of different countries, but uh, America is one of the biggest destinations for our full-time staff as well as um, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, China, Russia, Korea. These are all other major hubs for Crimson around the world. And most of your staff is involved in the mentoring and guiding of, of applicants? Yes, uh, we have a dedicated technology engineering data science team that helps to build the platform that a lot of students learn through. So we've got like a video crew. We've, we've filmed you know, more than a thousand videos on these college campuses describing different parts of the application process. So we've got a very popular YouTube channel that a lot of students love to watch around the world to learn about these different schools. But yeah, a lot, a lot of our, our team are directly working with students. They're called strategists, working on their counseling journeys, figuring out you know, what they can do throughout high school to best develop their profile. We've got student success managers, curriculum designers, you know, a, a really extensive team to make sure we're really putting our students' best foot forward. That's brilliant. And do you have some, uh, some full-time people working with you in the finance arena or operations, things like that? At this point, um, we've got a pretty heavy hitting, uh, I guess, headquarter functions, finance, operations, human resources, sales and marketing, digital marketing, country teams led by local country managers that speak the local language and are responsible for running their particular neck of the woods. So if you go to Crimson in Russia, if you're ever making the trip, uh, the whole office speaks Russian, for example, and has a lot of local cultural context. They can advise families accordingly. And then we've got a great you know, board and you know, fantastic investor base behind us, which has been great because... You know, we started this when we were very young. We're still pretty young. And um, getting that advice from those who've done these kind of things before us has been critical to being able to serve, serve more students in the short period of time. Good. Well, one of the other compliments I'd like to pay you is your willingness to bring other people into your team because many brilliant entrepreneurs have a really difficult time letting go, sharing authority, sharing responsibility, sharing opportunity. Clearly, you don't have that hang up. And that's part of why you've grown as much as you've grown and the impact you're having is so significant. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I think. Um, this comes from uh, the same philosophy applied to actually schooling. So for the students on the call and parents, a lot of students will go through high school and if you're averse to asking questions, if you're, if you're that student who's a bit stuck in class, you don't quite understand a concept in English or in math and you just leave that class, you don't ask a question, you just think I'll figure it out later versus the student who proactively says, hey, actually, I want to get the answer to this question. I want to ask for advice and I'm okay appearing that you know, I don't know what I'm doing here. That different mindset is critical because if you compound just asking that one question a day over the course of four years of high school, the amount of extra information you soak in is, is far higher. And so I found, for example, even at college, 
a lot of opportunities. They're not advertised on a website. Like uh, I had to go to, you know, email, cold email different professors or um, different, you know, advisors to get opportunities like my thesis advisor and stuff. And so I think that willingness to practically ask for advice and, um, you know, bring in experts around you is, is, is a critical skill. And furthermore, um, people are usually really happy to help. You know, people love to share wisdom and expertise. And so it's, it's very rare that you ask someone for help who's, you know, older than you with a bit more wisdom than you. And they say no, um, you know, hardly ever happens. So it's more of that mental barrier within the student or the entrepreneur that they need to overcome. And then once they've sort of gotten over that, you know, internal qualm, um, you know, it's, it's a very powerful uh, trait. It is because people do like to share, particularly when they're asked by somebody that's got the heart and the sincerity that you've got. So Jamie, time with you flies, my friend. This has just been a wonderful conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed getting to know you. Uh, how can people locate your book and what's the best way to access more information about Crimson? So people can jump on to uh, Amazon. Uh, it's under Accepted. And if you want to hear more about Crimson and how we work with students across the US, um, just go on to crimsoneducation.org or type Crimson Education on Google and you'll find us really quickly. Perfect. Well, I appreciate you very much. Keep up the great work. And listeners, always believe. Don't let age be a limitation. Let everything be an inspiration. Thanks so much, Jamie, for joining us today on The Action Catalyst. Thanks, Dan. Amazing. Thank you very much. It was super fun. Really appreciated your questions. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. To stay updated on everything that The Action Catalyst is up to, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. Thanks for listening.